Welcome to Grace to All. I'm your host, Paul Gray. You've probably used the word grace, sang Amazing Grace, or said grace at a meal. But did you know that God's grace is way better than we can even imagine, and that you and all people already have an abundant supply of God's unlimited amazing grace? Today, we're going to hear the truth about God's amazing grace to all people. So, sit back, relax, and prepare to be inspired and awakened to the amazing treasures that you already possess. This is truth that you can handle. Hey, everybody. Appreciate you all joining me again today for another edition of Grace to All with Paul Gray. The name of this podcast and the name of our corresponding Facebook site, Grace to All, is not a hidden meaning. (laughs) It means God's grace is to all people, period. God's unconditional love that never ends is for all people. Now, once we grasp that, both of those are, are scriptural. Once we grasp that, generally it takes the Holy Spirit of Christ in us to reveal that to us because many of us have believed otherwise from religion or from culture or whatever. Once we start to grasp that God really is unconditional love and he loves us all unconditionally, perfectly, forever, and his grace has covered everything and made everything possible and right with us in our relationship with him, then we start to see things in Scripture that just jump out at us that we never saw before. And we start to see things in Scripture that go, no, that that can't be true. I believed that forever, but God's telling me now that's not true. That doesn't line up with unconditional love and grace for everyone forever. We're going to take a look at just a couple of those concepts today. This is Romans chapter 10, written by the Apostle Paul, verse 17. It's a very familiar verse for a lot of religious people, a lot of Bible-studying people. Faith comes from hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. Now, that's the New American Standard version. And the New American Standard and other translations that say faith comes from hearing by the word of Christ are one set of Greek transcripts, another that the King James Version and others come from, say, by hearing the word of God. But we're going to look today at what I think is the more accurate one. Faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. It's Jesus' faith. It's the faith of Jesus. And he, Jesus, the living word of God, speaks to us. And that's where our faith comes, from his faith to our faith, Romans chapter 1 says. Let's take a look at Hebrews chapter 4, verses 12 and 13. It says, the word, and the Greek word there is rhema, R-H-E-M-A, the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul that's our mind, will, and emotions, and spirit. That's the spirit of Christ in us, that we're one with God. It pierces both joints and marrow, and it is able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Now, so many people taught for so long that that word is Scripture. It's the Bible. It's not for two 
very clear reasons. First of all, the word, rima, and second of all, what happens in the next sentence, referring to the word of God before being living and active. Then the writer goes on to say, and there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him, capital H, both times. The word of God is a him, a personal pronoun, Jesus. The word of God is not scripture. Scripture contains words about God, written by people, influenced by God. But scripture didn't exist before the beginning of time, as John says in chapter 1, Jesus, the living word of God, did. This is a hard, hard concept for many people to grasp because so many of us were just taught over and over again the Bible is the word of God, but it's not. All right. Jesus, the Word of God, capital W, is living and active and reveals what's in our spirit, who we really are, and what's in our soul, our mind, will, and emotions that's influenced by our our five senses in the world. Nothing's hidden from him. Isaiah 55, 11, the prophet here is speaking for God, as God. He says, so will my, capital my, so will my word and that's a Hebrew word, D-A-B-A-R, Debar. So will my word be, which goes forth from my mouth, capital M, my mouth. It will not return to me, capital M, empty, without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. That God is saying, my word, which goes forth from my mouth, won't return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. Now, that word in Hebrew, debar, means speaking or an utterance. God's word, which we know from John 1, is Jesus, the living word. Jesus won't come back void. What Jesus says to us individually and personally today, what Jesus says won't come back void. It will literally accomplish what God intends it to do. Jesus came to redeem all mankind and to make all mankind whole. And he did. He's the savior of the world. Jesus came to give us abundant life. And he did. Jesus, the word of God, who is grace in person, came to give us all grace. And he did. Jesus, the word of God, who is love, came to show us we are loved. And he did did. Jesus, the word of God, whose will is that no one perish, but everyone have eternal life, came to give us all eternal life, and he did. Jesus, the word of God, came to seek and save that which was lost, our memory of who we've always been, are, and always will be, and who God is, and he did. Jesus, the living word of God, accomplished everything God intended. Now, The rima word, R-H-E-M-A, the rima word of God, that Greek word, rima means that which is or has been uttered by the living voice, the thing spoken, the spoken word, any sound produced by the voice and having definite meaning, speech, discourse, or an utterance. Again, those of us who've been brought up in religion have been taught that the Bible is the word of God, but it's not. 
It's actually words about God. It's not God. Jesus is the living word of God, the Rima word of God, the Logos word of God. Scripture points to Jesus. Jesus is the real deal who lives in us and speaks his words to us. Jesus appeared to the apostle Paul and taught him personally in the Arabian desert for 13 years. That was five years after Jesus finished work when he went back to heaven. He spent 13 years teaching Paul, and according to Paul, Jesus explained to Paul the mysteries of God that no one had ever understood before, not even the disciples. See, we worship Jesus, not written words. Jesus spoke to Paul personally, and then Paul spoke to us by writing those things down. And Jesus speaks to us today, just like he did, Paul, in our desert and in our garden, everywhere we are. The Holy Spirit of Christ came on Pentecost and was poured out into all people and is our teacher. Peter wrote, you don't need a teacher. You have no need for a teacher. You have the teacher inside of you. Capital T, the Holy Spirit of Christ in you. Christ is the one who explains what Scripture means. Christ is the one who tells us what we're reading in the printed word is accurate or not. Jesus gave Paul wisdom. He revealed to Paul what really is, which is totally different than what anyone thought or believed up till that time. He revealed mysteries to Paul, like Christ is in all, believers and unbelievers. Mysteries like we were all created in Christ before the beginning of time. Mysteries like we are all heirs of God in Christ. We are all one with the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Mysteries like God is love, and everything God says and thinks and does is love. Mysteries like God is continually working all things for the good. Jesus is the Savior of all. All died with Christ, and they all live in Christ. All have been reconciled. God doesn't hold sins against anyone. Those are all things, truth about who God is, that Jesus revealed to Paul, and then Paul wrote about in Scripture. God is love, and who we are is love. And now we know and believe these things. Now, many of us on this journey that we're on come to the point in time where we we get confused. I know I did. And we wonder, well, what do I believe about Scripture? I, I'm hearing I'm hearing from Jesus, and I'm hearing from other people who hear from him. I, I, I'm, I'm hearing that what I've read and believed in Scripture is not true. What do I do? What can I believe? Many people don't even want to read Scripture anymore because they feel confused. There's good news. Instead of being confused, Jesus will reveal to you what he wants you to know. There's no confusion in Jesus. Now, I'm going to take just a quick look today at one terrible false religious concept, a false teaching, a lie, that many of us used to think that we saw in Scripture. Until we started hearing the living word of God, Jesus, speak the truth to us in love about God being love, unconditional, everlasting, never failing, never ending love for every people. Now, I want to start out as we talk about this by asking you a question. Do you know what Jesus revealed about hell to the writers of the New Testament, to Paul and John and all the other writers of Scripture that wrote after Jesus finished work at the cross, after Jesus died and went back and came to everybody in the, in the form of the Holy Spirit, what did Jesus reveal about hell? I'll wait. Apparently, 
Nothing. Paul, who wrote two-thirds of the New Testament, who's the apostle of grace, handpicked by Jesus to be the one to whom he would reveal the mysteries of the ages about God and all people, wrote 13 books in the New Testament, maybe 14, never mentions hell. Neither is hell mentioned in the book of Acts, which is the acts of the Holy Spirit through the apostles and disciples in the early church. You would think that the people that left Jesus raised up and prepared to take the good news to everyone, you would think that in the book, the very book written about what they did and what they said, the book of Acts, you would think if Jesus told them anything about hell or revealed to Luke, the author, anything about hell, you'd think it'd be in that book, right? Well, it's not. None of the Apostle John's books talk about hell. Neither does the book of Hebrews. Now, sometimes some translators have mistranslated other words and called them hell. For example, one time in Second Peter 4, the Greek word tataro is incorrectly translated in a few translations as hell. That's the only time the word appears in all of Scripture. And here's what it actually means. It's the name of the subterranean region, which is doleful and dark, regarded by the ancient Greeks. It's a word from the ancient Greeks, long before Jesus came to earth, as the abode of the wicked dead, where they suffer punishment for their evil deeds. It's comparable to the word Gehenna, which was the trash dump of Jerusalem in the days of Jesus and long before that. Most of the time when you see words that are translated before Jesus finished work at the cross, translated incorrectly as hell, it's the actual word Gehenna, which was a real place, a trash dump outside of Jerusalem, where at one time, Jewish people who worshipped false gods burned their babies there. When at Jesus' time, and for years before that, it was the trash dump where dead animals were thrown. There were no pet cemeteries then. It's the place where criminals and people who had no money were thrown when they were dead. They didn't bury them. They threw them there, along with all the trash and all the sewage. There were, there were no sewer lines then. There was nothing like that. There were no people coming around to pick up trash. When they slaughtered animals to cut them up for meat, sheep and goats and cows, the carcass and all that kind of stuff, they threw it in this place that burned that it, the fire never stopped. And there was a, a, a type of worm in that that had, was able to withstand the fire that was there and would eat all of those things the fire where the worm never dies. It was a literal, actual place in Jerusalem. It's still there. Gehenna is still there, but not as a trash dump. It's been reclaimed. It's a luscious park now. Jesus used the word Gehenna, but many translations incorrectly put the word hell in there. There's a translation called the Disciples' Literal New Testament. It's a highly regarded translation. 
It never, in all of its New Testament, the disciples, literal New Testament, never ever uses the English word hell at all. Neither do many other translations, especially more recent ones, because people have been able to do the research now and look back and see what those words really meant. But here's something I just realized this week. It's obvious now. It's like one of those things that just jumps out at you. Here's a prime example. In the disciples' literal New Testament that never, ever once uses the word hell, in Matthew 23, hell is not mentioned in the text, but the editors, not the translators, the editors arbitrarily inserted this subheading I'm going to read to you before verse 13 in Matthew 23. The subheading which is not the text, it's something that editors put in, it says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you are blind guides. How will you escape hell? Hmm. The text goes on and doesn't mention hell, but the editors who have an agenda, who have a doctrinal bent, inscribed it in the subchapter heading, it seems obvious to me to get us to believe that's what the passage says when it doesn't even say that. Amazing. Hell's not in the translation, nor should it be. But the publishers, not the translators, inserted it. Now, there's a great new book by the Why Guy called Is God Bipolar? Who He really goes into great depth on these things, and I, I would encourage you to look that up. Check out the Why Guy on Facebook and check out his book, is God bipolar? He goes into great detail about this thing. He's really done the research, as have other people. There are lots of great books out there like Hell No and Raising Hell, different things by people who have really studied and researched this. Now, most of you know by now that Jesus never mentioned the word hell. That word did not even exist until centuries later. The words he used were either the physical place of Gehenna or a Greek mythological concept, Hades, which he used in a form of hyperbole and allegory to make a teaching point. That was one of the main ways that Jewish people, teachers, leaders, rabbis, used to get points across. That's what they used in literature and a lot of other things, hyperbole and allegory, many times referring to mythical places from other nations than their own Jewish nation. The concept of hell as a literal place of fire and eternal conscious torment did not come about until around 400 AD, four centuries after Jesus was born, when the Roman church leader, a guy named Jerome, made the first translation of the Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic into Latin. It's called the Latin Vulgate. And he inserted Latin words into the text that had nothing to do with original scripture. Nothing. One of those Latin words, infernum, I-N-F-E-R-N-U-M, which meant a place of eternal conscious torment, was a Latin word, a Latin concept that was mythological. He just inserted that into the text where it wasn't there at all. Then when King James had his translation done in the 1600s, much of that was done from the Latin Vulgate. And 
the King James translators changed infernum to hell, originally H-E-L-L-E. The modern word, English word hell, is derived from that Old English word, which was first used around 725 A.D. to refer to a mythical neverworld of the dead. Mythical, reaching into the Anglo-Saxon pagan period. This English word hell comes in part from an Old Norse mythological character, a lady named Hel, H-E-L, which means one who covers up or hides something. In Norse mythology, H-E-L is the name of a guy named Loki, it's his daughter, who rules over the evil dead in a mythical place called Nephlaheim, which is the lowest of all words. It's a pagan concept. The word was first used in English in 725 as a pagan concept. Today, it would be like Darth Vader. Most people in English-speaking countries know who Darth Vader is. You know, the dark, nasty character with the raspy voice in the Star Wars episodes, who does have a change at the end of his life. Darth Vader is not real. Darth Vader is a fictional character that comes from movies that are not based on truth. They're fantasy. They're sci-fi. Hell is the same way. It's the same concept. It never existed. It started out in mythical settings, and then translators, I can't believe that they did this, translators took a Latin word that was never in Scripture and changed it to this mythological word, hell. The whole concept of hell is a pagan mythological concept appropriated by religion and inserted into scripture translations in an attempt to control people by fear. And it's done a lot of damage. I'm just going to mention two other important words that the Roman Latin Church added. There are many others, but two very important ones that have caused all kinds of damage that this guy, Jerome, inserted into Scripture for a meaning that was never intended. The Greek word was metanoia, which means to have a 180-degree change in your mind about what you thought before. And it was particularly used by scripture writers to change your mind about what you thought about sin and how your sin affected or separated you from God. Metanoia means change your mind, turn around and go the other direction, change your mind from the lie, the false concept of believing that God will punish you for your sins and that your sins have separated God from you. That's the lie that Adam believed in the garden, which everything went south from there until Jesus came. It's a pagan concept appropriated by religion, inserted into scripture. All right. Now, the words here, the, the pagan concept, are penance and then repentance which is today in modern translations is repent. Repentance, repent is not a biblical concept. It is not in original scripture. Jerome inserted, instead of the word metanoia, changing your mind about sin and believing the truth, he just took that word away 
and put in the Latin word. He initially put in the Latin word for penance, which meant to pay money to the church for your sins, whatever the priest tells you you owe. And then when they needed even more money to build the great cathedrals and to fund the Vatican, he changed it to repent, repentance, to give even more. And then when the King James Bible came out, they got their translation in large part from the Latin Vulgate and continue to use that word, repent. Most Bibles continue to do it. It appears that they didn't go back and use the original Greek because so many people were used to the word repent. And the translators thought, well, if we change that, you know, people won't believe anything else we say. That appears to be what happened. Religion continues to use it. Even Protestants, who, of course, broke away from the Catholic Church, the Protestant translations continue to use the word repent that comes from the Roman Church in A.D. 400 from a Latin word that was never in Scripture. Now, why is it so important that we even talk about this? Some of you, your eyes probably glazed over when you hear this. I, I know when I teach it, sometimes people's eyes glaze over. Because you go, what, 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 what? Why is it so important? Well, it's so important because hell doesn't exist, and it never did exist. And it's only used by religion as a tool to cause fear in people, to control people, to control their behavior, and to get them to give money to religion. So, if we're not listening to the living word of Christ in us, if we're not reading and listening through the lens of God's perfect, unconditional, never-ending love and grace, which is all good news for all people, we're going to be subtly influenced by people who didn't even write or translate the text. We'll be told what something means before we even read it by subtitles. Or we'll be told by people who use concordances to show different meanings than words originally had, we're going to be influenced by that. We all have that. An interesting exercise is just to look at the subheadings in the New Testament in whatever Bible you pick out and see if they actually point to the truth or to lies. Friends, the New Testament was not meant to be a rule book. It's not intended to show us the awful eternal consequences from breaking rules and disobeying. The New Testament's not an owner's manual. It's not a handbook for how to live. It is a love letter, an intimate love letter. The Old Testament, Hebrew scripture, was Moses, David, Solomon, those guys. It was their attempt, and I think they were well-meaning, but it was their attempt to show people how to live according to their darkened understanding of God. Remember, Jesus said in Matthew eleven twenty-seven, nobody's ever known God. Nobody knew him. They all had false impressions of him. They didn't know him. They didn't know Jesus when he showed up in person was the exact representation of God. Now, I believe those guys' intentions were good, but they all had Adam's concept of God. They thought God was mad and had to be appeased and we had to keep all the rules, most of which were not God's rules. God gave the Ten Commandments to Moses. Nobody can argue with those Ten Commandments, but all the rest of the 613 commandments, Moses came up with them. Jesus actually referred to them as Moses' law, and he often contradicted them. He said, Moses wrote this, but I say this. See, today, people who don't know God as unconditionally perfect, never-ending love and grace, who don't know the Old Testament wasn't written to any of us and still see it as a rule book, a book that says, if you do this, then God will do that. If you don't do that, then God will do that. See, that was never written to us. 
It was written by people who literally didn't know the real God. The New Testament says the Old Testament points to Jesus, who is the exact representation of the living God, who is one with Papa love and Holy Spirit love, who is the living word of God, who is all love and grace, grace in person and inclusion. 50 years ago, this fall, back in 1970, I was 23 years old. I was away from my wife, Kitsy, for the first time since we'd gotten married. I was at basic training at Fort Leonard Wood, Missouri. We called it Fort Lost in the Woods, Missouri. And Kitsy and I wrote love letters. We were 250 miles apart. We didn't have uh, cell phones then. We didn't have computers then, or at least not personal computers. Uh, we wrote letters in the mail. And boy, did we love to, in the Army, when mail call came. I'm not going to tell you what my wife Kitsy and I wrote to each other in our love letters, but I'll tell you what we did not write. We didn't write, oh, honey, I miss you and I love you. But if you break any of my rules, I'm going to punish you. I'm going to be separate from you forever. And if you don't get things right, I'm going to have to burn you forever. Would you like to get a love letter like that? The new covenant, Jesus finished work at the cross, is a love letter. That's what it is. And it was written directly and specifically to you because God loves you unconditionally his love never ends never fails you've already been included into his family and he will never let go of you he'll never leave you or never forsake you his unconditional love and grace is to and for all people and as my friend malcolm smith says that's the way it is Thank you all so much for listening to another edition of Grace to All with Paul Gray. I'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to Grace to All. For more about us, how we can serve you, and our special guest, please visit www.gracewithpaulgray.com. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so that you never miss an episode and to join our Facebook group, Grace to All, where you'll be inspired and awakened to more truth that you can handle.